Once again, it's good to see everybody. And uh, as you might have heard, uh, the talk tonight is how we might relate to this predicament we're all in, you know, each of us in our own way, this predicament of embodiment. And uh, I think it's useful actually to consider how we relate to our body and just the physicality of our existence, mind tethered to the body. It's not so different than how we might be relating to the coronavirus and other complicated, challenging, beautiful, interesting things that come our way. So in a way, cultivating this intimacy with the body and learning to be free with the messiness and the complexity and the ungovernableness of the body. It's a lot like learning to be in relationship with another human being or some of you may be raising children or, you know, any things that we naturally come up against as a human being, finding our way. And of course, we're going to have a lot of conditioning about the body, sort of like, you know, we've been conditioned around food too. We have our stuff. Part of that is cultural. Part of that is just our genetic conditioning. And it's the same with the body. I like to think like in starting a conversation like we're going to have tonight, I'll talk for a while, but we'll have lots of time for discussion and questions. Um, but just to challenge myself and challenge all of us, you know, we can think of probably times in the past where we bumped into a wild animal, whatever that might have been. I was, this is a long time ago, but a good friend of mine who has since passed away, we were taking a hike in a, an old woods, you know, the trees were all pretty mature. And uh, we were having a deep Dharma discussion. So we just stopped and we stood there. We were talking for 15, 20 minutes. And then we both looked down. And I'm not kidding. 18 inches away was a little fawn. And I don't know if you know this about baby deer, but the they're safer not following the parent, the mother around when their mother's feeding. It's safer for the, the fawn just to sit in the grass or in the bush and wait till the mother comes back. And so it's really got this instinct, don't move. <laughs> You're safer if you don't move. So we're just standing there. And so we had this, then once we realized it was there, we, of course, just took it in, standing there. And then you can imagine, I'm sure a lot of you have had a similar experience where that quality of awe, that really beautiful interest, it was just effortless. You know, just that, and if, and you know, in those moments, especially in the initial moments, the mind, it doesn't tend to want to think about the deer. It's just taking in the color, the shape, the, that experience of seeing a creature that was just born weeks before sitting there. And we probably have all you know, different kinds of stories where our experience with nature 
brought out just a kind of awe and respect and interest and intimacy. But frankly, when is the last time we had that kind of relationship to our body? <laughs> you know, a lot of it, you know, if we sense our body, a lot of it is like, oh, it's a ball and chain. You know, oh my God, I got to deal with my body. My nails need to be clipped. My hair needs to be combed. My body needs to be washed. It has to be fed. It's not the way I want it to be. <clears throat> it doesn't seem fair. It aches. Feels vulnerable. Came across this quote from Wendell Berry. Some of you know him. This wonderful naturalist and writer and wise person. This is from, I'm not sure if it's the book or the essay, Unforeseen Wilderness. And this passage goes like this. Always in the big woods, when you leave familiar ground and step off alone into a new place, there will be, along with the feelings of curiosity and excitement, a little nagging of dread. It is the ancient fear of the unknown, and it is your first bond with the wilderness you're going into. What you are doing is exploring you are undertaking the first experience, not of the place, but of yourself in that place. It is an experience of essential loneliness, for nobody can discover the world for anyone else. It is only after we discovered it for ourselves that it becomes a common ground and a common bond, and we cease to be alone. And um, I really think about this in terms of, you know, there's really no body, of course, without mind. How could we know body? How could we know the world without the mind? So when we talk about embodiment, we're really talking about understanding the mind, understanding the heart, or understanding what this is. This, you know, a lot of you have been around, you know, that our refuge is Buddha knowing Dhamma. And when Buddha knows Dhamma, when the awakened quality of the heart, the heart that can be intimate and open, when it's intimate and open with the way it is, Dhamma, then we say our the activity of our life is Sangha. This sort of beautiful responsivity to whatever's going on in our lives. And it really, that skillful activity, that enlightened activity, I guess we could say, it really comes because of Buddha knowing Dhamma. And this is really the point of, you know, awakening is an embodied thing. We need the messiness of the body, the ungovernableness of the body. Even I, I like, I've been using more and more the wildness or the wilderness of the body. We need it. It's, a, it's the essential place for awakening. There's no freedom without the heart, the mind being free with the body. And we could expand that to say there's no freedom without the mind, the heart, 
being free with the world, with the world of activity, the world of relationship. And, you know, we, we learn a lot um, when we hear a teaching like this. And, you know, the Buddha was very big on mindfulness of the body. This is really goes to the heart of how he taught and trained his students. And just hearing these kind of instructions about coming to the body, I mean, or, you know, whether it's a specific aspect of the body, like mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of walking, or more open <clears throat> to the body as the five, the sensitivity of the five physical senses, which is also, you know, a useful way to think of the body, the sensitivity of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching. But the one of the first things we discover when we come across these kinds of teachings is how much defensiveness, how we've been protecting ourselves. We don't really like that vulnerability, that exposure. And I don't know about you, but, you know, somehow, strangely, we feel more comfortable in our dramas, our worries, you know, our fantasies, than we do just being in the exposure of sensation and seeing and hearing, smelling and tasting, and then of course the thoughts, mental reactions that arise because of that exposure. How much of our mental activity is a defense against life? That's just shocking when we see that. And, uh, you know, it's such a such a bizarre and difficult and strange time. I'm guessing that's not just me and that it's true for you too. And um, so we can see how, you know, because of the way we're living and the because of the way we're getting triggered, we tend to want less and less to be in the body or to be in the moment or to be exposed to the feelings that are coming and going here. It just doesn't seem that it's safe. And the thing is, in that sort of momentary um, pattern of being in denial, being in distraction, of course, wisdom, the mind doesn't recognize the deal with the devil. You know, how much ongoing stress we're investing in it or we're picking up because we're basically, you know, the strategy for living is, I just don't want to be there. I just don't want to feel what it feels like. And so I'm going to worry about this, or I'm going to listen to the news, or I'm going to, you know, do this obsessive thing, or that distracted thing, or fill my, the space of the moment with this activity or that activity. And of course, any one of those things may not be inherently unskillful or inappropriate. But the mind's dependence, like the mind using the normal activity of life to avoid being intimate, being in the wilderness of the body and the mind, the activity of the body and the mind. Somebody recently gave me this book, uh, The Spell 
of the sensuous. I don't know if you've seen it. It's it's a little bit dated now. I think it, I don't know, maybe the 90s it came. It was written, uh, written by David Abram. And this is a good, good ways through the book. I'll just share a few sentences here. This is actually in the afterword because um, he wrote it. Uh, this book was printed 20 years after he it, it was originally published. And so he wrote an afterword when it was republished. And in it he writes, The earth of our direct experience is not that blue marble flecked with white, mapped, and monitored by innumerable satellites. Rather, it is the particular place where I find myself, the tangible terrain that I engage with my muscles, whose horizons beckon my eyes, and whose tangled rhythms nourish my listening ears. And then a few sentence, sentences later, only by being deeply here, in and of this place, am I palpably connected to every other place. However much I may be concerned by events unfurling on the far side of the globe, and however incessantly those happenings shove themselves through my various screens and headsets, my primary responsibility must be to the realm that I ceaselessly inhabit with the whole of my creaturely flesh and to the palpable relationships that I sustain in this realm. And I find that a really powerful Dharma teaching that this, in some senses, this simple, and in some ways, because we're, we tend to be unfamiliar with the experience of embodiment, you know, it's here and now, but it's not necessarily always familiar. But this is the ground, the working ground of awakening. And this is what keeps our practice. I mean, our practice will get idealistic. In fact, I think a, a useful way, at least at times, to imagine, to think about, discuss with our Dharma friends about our practice is you know, just the, over the long course of many years, how many different ways we've caught ourselves caught in some idealistic notion about practice, some version of wanting to be saved. If I have a good sit, then I'll be saved. You know, if the teacher likes me, I'll be saved. If I understand the concept, I'll be saved. If I have this kind of experience, I'll be saved. And, uh, you know, we learn, because <laughs> we have, you know, over time, you know, we'll have all those different kinds of experiences. And where do we find ourselves? Back home, with our personality and our body and doubt and, you know, the whole shebang of our life. I was at a retreat, uh, maybe it was 2015, <clears throat> it was the last time Saida Utejaniya was teaching at Spirit Rock. And uh, there was a group of us, a group of teachers meeting with him. 
And as soon as we all got settled, he looked at us and he said, is the Dharma optimistic or pessimistic? And then, and then he wouldn't let us off the hook. He started looking at specific people in the room, you know, and none of us wanted to say the wrong thing. <laughs> but he was really sort of making people respond. So what do you think? Was the Buddha optimistic or pessimistic? And we all knew it was a setup, you know, <laughs> so we're trying to be quiet. So eventually, after he got a few people to embarrass themselves and commit to one or the other, he said, it's neither. It's realistic. It's not optimistic. It's not pessimistic. It's realistic. And I find that really useful in terms of understanding why we want to use sensation, physicality, embodiment as a working ground of our practice is it's real. It's realistic. And it kind of gives shape to like whatever whatever idealistic or whatever sense of refuge or freedom, you know, that word enlightenment, the word awakening, whatever we've read or heard that has inspired us. You know, even seeing some of the elders, people who've been practicing for a while and just sensing in them some freedom or stories that we hear about teachers and wise folks you know, the mind is going to conceptualize that, which it's not bad because those ideas can be inspiring. But then the practice isn't the same as being inspired, right? The point of being inspired is that we get energized and we're willing to do something like sit down or take a walk and drop in. Like, well, what is that inspired sense of what's possible, freedom that might be possible? Well, what does it look like when the mind is like this, when the body is like this, when life is like this? So it's really, um, you know, over and over again, being inspired and then grounding in the present moment. And the gateway to the present moment for most of us, most of the time, is the sensing body. And that can be, like I mentioned, the sort of fullness of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and the tactile world of sensation. Or it can be one particular aspect of it. Anything will do. But we need that grounding in nature for there to be any authenticity to awakening. Otherwise, it's some kind of idealistic transcendence. And I'm sure you've noticed uh, it's very compelling. One of the real discoveries we've all probably had, those of you especially who've been able to go on residential retreats, is when we're you know, sitting and then get lost in thought. I mean, you can get really concentrated being lost in thought. The rest of the world drops away. Like, even the fact that you're somewhere on retreat, completely, the mind, the heart can be completely oblivious. You're completely like we are when we're in a dream. We're just in that, you know, little 
drama that the mind is thinking through. And then when at some point something, somebody sneezes and we realize we've been lost in thought, we can notice the sort of residual concentration like that one-pointedness with delusion, with you know the drama, the content of that particular thought. And it's really compelling, like in terms of idealistic notions of awakening. People can have thoughts about really compelling, really powerful thoughts about emptiness and insight and love and divine, you know, mystical insights and experiences. And as thought, as powerful thoughts where the mind collects around that idea of who I am, what is right, it can be powerful. This works in politics too with things like nationalism. You know, there's a lot of power when the mind collects around an idea. So this is the real shadow in spiritual practice that, and it's going to happen, you know, even with people who are really sincere and careful students of the Buddhist teachings, part of the time our mind is going to first get inspired, but then, in a way, get dependent or fixated on some idea because we're extracting some juice. You know, we have some idea of the practice or the path or who I am as a practitioner or who my teacher is as a practitioner, or it doesn't really matter, but some idea. And by absorbing into that idea, fixating on that idea, I get a temporary space from the messiness of life and relationship and having a body and having to earn a living and having to deal with viruses and be in community because we're in that bubble, self-created bubble, self-maintained bubble of our spiritual fantasy or whatever it might be. And then, of course, you know, we, we don't want to lose the buzz we get from that sort of clarity that's within that bubble. And so we like to hang around people who support our bubbles we have these unconscious agreements. I'll support your bubble if you support my bubble. Don't pop my bubble, I won't pop yours. And see, this is another real um, reason that teachers like the Buddha, you know, set up practice that kept bringing people back into the body, into this awareness. And it's not that it isn't useful to seclude the mind. But there's something about the ordinariness of the body and the breath and hearing and walking. So as a more of a wisdom practice, any freedom that you or I might be interested in, don't you think it would be a freedom that could express itself when conditions, circumstances are like this. That's the kind of freedom I'm interested in, right? Freedom that 
wouldn't have a problem with these particular circumstances or conditions right here, right now. This is from the Dhammapada, this collection of verses. Simply talking a lot doesn't maintain the Dhamma. Whoever, although one's heard next to nothing, sees Dhamma through one's body, is not heedless of Dhamma. This person is one who maintains Dhamma, maintains the way, the path. So, you know, we cultivate, we, in fact, really learn to honor the body. And I think over time, you know, when I think over my 37 or so years of, you know, dedicated practice, mostly dedicated practice, <laughs> um, I, uh, you know, this, you know, cultivating this realistic, grounded connection with the body, you know, we, I, we just learned all the habits of the mind to, and I mentioned one, you know, the sort of aversive relationship with reality and especially the sort of concreteness of the body where we see the body as a ball and chain. And you'll notice it like when we brush our teeth and it's like we're brushing the teeth as if they're a pain in the butt or even how we put on our clothes or how we feed the body you know, the attitude in mind. It's like a burden. Oh, got to deal with this body. Now I got to use the bathroom. Now I'm a little cold. Now I'm a little warm. And we just feel burdened like we can with our pets too, right? They're so cute. But sometimes, and you know, especially over time, it's like, oh my God, I got to feed the cat one more time. I got to let it outside. I got to find it. I have to do this, I have to do that. I don't know if you heard during the meditation, our cat, not able to come into this room, was complaining. Hopefully you didn't bother your sit too much. But it's like this is then our gateway. When we realize there's some aversion, whether that's in the form of fear or in the, in the form of controlling, wanting to control our bodily experience, wanting to get it taken care of so we can be done with it, you know. So then we, okay, so this is the wilderness of my body. We're not separating the aversion, the fear, the irritation, the controlling away, like the body's one thing and the anger's another. It's really, it's that mixture of the mind and body, right? That's the doorway to our working ground of awakening, to whatever freedom is actually available, whatever love is actually available, it's got to be here. If it's going to be real, it's going to include this irritation I have with my body. And then, of course, there's greed. We can be, you know, really enchanted with the body, seeing it as a kind of savior. We're on a good roll. We've been exercising. We've been eating right. Body's looking good, at least as we interpret it, you know, and we have some kind of fantasy that the mind is dependent on or attached to of, you know, if I maintain this or if I develop this, 
this body, this experience of the body, this experience of the wider world that I'm cultivating, that I'm really dependent on, it's going to save me. I can count on it. And so, of course, you know, that attachment, that greed, or it's really just a misunderstanding that the body can save. There's somebody the body can save. So we have the the aversion, you know, the body is a ball and chain, it's here to torment me, I'm imprisoned, you know, by this complicated life, this embodied life, or the world of embodiment, the world of having a body, it's really here to save me, you know, and especially in the wider sense of relationship, food, wealth, possessions, Oh yeah, I just haven't got my act together, but when I get my act together and get all those things, then the body, then this embodied life will be perfect. Now I know when you say it out loud like this, we all know better. But actually, isn't it true that some version of this is really moving through the mind a lot of the day? You know, if I get warmer, I'm going to be, or if I can finally get into my bed tonight, I'm going to be good. And then we have, you know, the sort of more general diluted qualities where we're not connected to the body at all. Think that the body, embodiment, circumstances doesn't matter. So we have these, you know, greed, anger, and delusion, these deep, unwholesome roots of how we relate to embodiment. And so much is turning those three unwholesome roots into gateways. And I, I mean, the, the general point is where there is suffering, where there is stress, where there is psychic weight or heaviness, then wisdom is suspicious because wisdom suspects it's not what it appears to be. So even in our body, like the simple experience of bodily pain, I mean, this is one of the first real insights we have when we, you know, have had a committed practice for a while, right, where we're sitting, you know, and, and we're in the middle of a 30-minute sit or whatever it might be, and it's really unpleasant, whatever it is. Might be restlessness, might be being really cold, might be having really achy knee, or whatever it might be. And the, and the mind is sort of teetering back and forth. There's some moments where it really feels unworkable and it really feels like I'm being tormented by the pain in my body. And then teachings come online, we remember, we cultivate some interest. Instead of trying to control, instead of fantasizing being able to move, fantasizing what it's going to be like when this sits over and I can move my body again, we actually get interested. And there can be moments, probably for many of us have been moments, where the mind comes into balance, awareness, wisdom awareness comes into balance, using the painful sensations as the object of awareness, becoming more intimate, and realizing a moment of that intimacy with a mind that is empty of grasping, empty of reactivity. So there's intimacy, undefended, 
100% there, right in the middle of the throbbing knee pain or whatever it might be, restlessness, could be any number of things, of course. Totally intimate, unafraid, patient, wholehearted, generous. And then there can be almost like uh, something opens up and we call that the experience of freedom. So what happens is the moment before the insight, there was just this balanced knowing of sensation, right? So there was sensation being known. It might be intensely unpleasant sensation being known, intensely unpleasant sensation being known, intensely unpleasant sensation being known. And then what arises with that continuity, you know, that wisdom, awareness, and the continuity of that wisdom and awareness, that non-reactivity, what can just show up in that moment is the mind now realizing that there's no body, there's nothing in the mind that has a problem with the intense sensation being known. So what it, the all of a sudden wisdom awareness is noticing the freedom, which is really the absence of attachment, the absence of there being somebody who doesn't like the physical pain. So this is a very, you know, this is how we talk about how insight arises because we've developed a practice that really respects embodiment. Doesn't see it as something I got to fix so I can get onto my good sit where I touch into, you know, a peaceful place or a really nice place. Sometimes we need to turn away from pain, of course, because it's too overwhelming. There's not enough stability of awareness to actually be with it in that balanced way. So then we say, okay, not now. I don't have the capacity. What else might this heart, this mind, be able to connect with and sustain this balanced, patient, generous, present moment awareness with? So we might move away from that, paying attention to the specific sensations that are painful, we might open to the whole body, or we might open to hearing, which might feel like there's more distance from the pain that we don't have the capacity to be with. Or we might stand up and do walking meditation, or open the eyes, or take a couple of deeper breaths to feel something that we can actually be intimate with. So there's, you know, there are definitely times when we don't have the capacity to be with physical pain. But when we can be with difficulty, difficulties with the experience of embodiment, there's the potential for realizing why we do this difficult work. It's freedom with the complexity, freedom with the intensity, freedom with not being in control of the body, its ungovernable nature. And the more we understand that, you know, we really develop this gratitude because, you know, a lot of us have spent, you know, previous years of practice sort of in more idealistic forms. And uh, 
but we always have to come back to the body. We always have to come back to our relationships in the messy bathroom and earning a living and all these truths of embodiment. And a lot of what we feel in that, uh, you know, come down from some high place that we've been able to find or whip up for ourselves is a sense of betrayal. And then after a while, we become less interested in anything idealistic. And we instead are more interested in an integrated or an embodied awakening. So, um, you know, the, the basic mechanism the Buddha talks about, you might remember this for those of you who've done some more deeper study, but the Buddha often talks about gratification, drawbacks, and escape. And especially in terms of sensuality, which in a way could be a substitute word for embodiment in the world generally. And I know, you know, in a lot of places in Buddhist centers and discussions, sensuality is just, you know, immediately thought of as something bad. But sensuality isn't bad, just like the body's not bad. It's the place for awakening. The danger, the problem is the misunderstanding of sensuality. So the basic mechanism is, you know, and this, the Buddha talks about this in terms of his whole, his, his own life. Where, you know, a part of his life was really getting clear about the gratification, the pleasure of the body, of sensuality and not being afraid of that pleasure. There are comforts. I'm a little cold right now, you know. It feels nice when we're cold to put something warm on. It feels nice to eat. It feels nice to have physical affection and even sexual contact in ways that, you know, feel good. There are a lot of pleasures of the body that are exactly what they are, pleasures of the body even playing with friends and, you know, hanging out with your pet or whatever it might be. These are real. And to be afraid of the experience of gratification, like when we can gratify a desire, to be afraid of that or to be neurotically pathologizing the happiness of sense pleasure, well, it's just weird. <laughs> it's like, why would we do that? It's like eating chocolate, <coughs> excuse me, it's like eating chocolate and hating ourselves while we're doing it. It's not a good way to eat chocolate. You know, if we're going to take a warm bath, it's really good to notice the pleasantness of the warm bath, the deliciousness of the food, the pleasantness of being with friends and family, or whatever the sense experience might be. But it's only one of the three things the Buddha's telling us we really need to be able to do in our practice, in our life. We need to really see honestly, truthfully, intimately the experience of gratification when we do receive the sense experiences we desire. And then we equally need to get to know, become really intimate and real about the drawbacks 
of sense experience. You know, certainly unpleasant sense experience we tend to be pretty good at noticing the drawbacks. But even noticing the drawbacks of pleasant sense experiences of the body. So it, but it's not about denying the pleasantness of the gratification. It's just once we, it's only because we've allowed ourselves to be very honest and intimate with the pleasantness of a sense experience, a bodily experience, that we can then realize more honestly the limitation or the drawback. Like, however nice it was, it ends. And often it ends pretty quickly. And, uh, you know, I'm guessing most of us, we've had opportunities to experience real, you know, beautiful sense experiences, but we're still hungry for more. You know, we're probably, none of us, really completely content, even though probably in the great scheme of humanity and history, you know, we've had it pretty nice most of the time in terms of pleasant sense experience. And yet, I'm looking for several more, <laughs> you know, and it forever. So then the Buddha asks, well then, really bring drawbacks into mind. Be just as intimate with the reality. And this is, you know, of course, a lot about the impermanent nature of sense experience, of bodily experience. And we do this not just with pleasant, but especially, of course, with painful. It's really painful, and then it changes. And then something else happens. And to really see, like, oh, I've been really cold before, and then it ends. I mean, I don't know if, uh, if this is a big deal for you, but I, I really worked with just being physically cold. And uh, it's amazing how we're able to tolerate unpleasant experience because we know it will eventually end. Or even like, because our sweater is close at hand, we can tolerate not going and getting it because we know that we could get it if we wanted to. So there's something about understanding the ephemeral and, and ultimately insubstantial nature of sense experience that really brings, turns the heart toward the third investigation the Buddha talks about. So we have becoming a really good student of gratification what do we get when we really show up for the sense experience, the bodily experiences that we get? What can, you know, what can be delivered through sensuality? What are the drawbacks? How come the heart remains hungry, never completely satisfied? And then the escape is only arises, like understanding that escape that I described a few minutes back, that sort of insight into freedom, it really comes about because we've done the work of investigating gratification and the work of investigating uh, the limitations, the drawbacks. Because then we're not afraid of sensuality, but we're not expecting it to save me, right? So that, it's just, you see how it's really developing samadhi, this 
profound, balanced, neither for nor against whatever's being experienced in the moment. It's like I'm not afraid to receive whatever pleasantness can come my way, but because I've really taken the time to see the drawbacks, the mind is no longer dependent, no longer imagining sense experience can save me. I mean, we know, I mean, just the simple thing we know is we can't take it with us. We're all going to die. And and our memories of really nice experiences, I mean, even before we die, we it's hard to remember them all. And, um, and, you know, we even catch ourselves, like when we are thinking about pleasant experience, have you ever caught yourself noticing how stressful it is to be feeding on the past, you know, by thinking about nice experiences from the past. There's a little juice we get by regurgitating something nice from the past, but the mind's dependence on it, it's it's stressful. So we get ourselves into that nice balance where we're intimate with embodiment, we're intimate with reality, the present moment, but we're not expecting it to save us. And this is the tipping point. This really sets up the insight where the mind realizes what the Buddha here in this teaching calls the escape from suffering, the ending of suffering. And it's really realizing the mind that's not clinging to any of sensuality. It's not uh, clinging to experience. It's not holding but it arose through this maturing of the heart's relationship to embodiment. We can't just go to freedom because it's always going to be one of those, get me out of here, you know, life is hard, get me out of here. We want to be saved, we want someone to sort of help us transcend the messiness. A lot of you know, you know, one of the images that's used in the tradition is the lotus. And, it, you know, I think it can be misunderstood because it can be used in a way like the lotus flower transcends the mucky swamp that it's growing in. But I think the point is that the beauty is really rooted in the mud. It's a way of, like it's an alchemy. We're using the complexity of having a body and having relationships and having to somehow find our way, earning a living so we can, you know, take care of our dependents and feed ourselves and have shelter. I mean, that's complex. And uh, this is all animals on this planet basically are doing some version of the same thing, of, of survival. And, you know, in this realm, it's life eating life, mostly. So in that way, it's very messy. And we aspire not to cause harm, but of course, being a living being, there is no way to be a living being without causing harm. So we're in this world, this messy world, and <clears throat> so it's like this alchemy the Dharma, the Buddhist teachings, it's really this path of transformation where 
there's a way to be here and free and beautiful and loving. There's a funny story I heard a Zen teacher tell once. It's called, it's, it sort of uses the Buddha, but it's not a historical story. You know, it's just some farmer really <clears throat> being pushed around by life seeks out the Buddha. It takes him forever to find the Buddha, but eventually he finds the Buddha. He has an audience with the Buddha. He tells the Buddha all about his problems with the livestock and his family who don't do the work they're supposed to do and, you know, all the problems with the weather and the seeds and the this and the that. And he goes on and on for quite a while telling him all his problems and then basically asks for help. And the Buddha shrugs his shoulder and says, you know what? The truth is everybody has 83 problems. And even if I had some clever solution for one of your 83 problems, you would just get another problem. So what's the point? And the farmer was pretty frustrated and just started to stomp away. And uh, just before he was out of earshot, the Buddha said to him, you know, I it's true, I can't help you with your 83 problems, all your complaints, but I can help you with your 84th problem. And so the farmer stopped, of course, and turned around and said, okay, what are you talking about? And the Buddha said, well, your 84th problem, can you guess what it is? <laughs> you don't like having 83 problems, right? So the 84th problem, <clears throat> really what the path is about, is realizing that there is this so-called mind, this life, this heart, that has a problem because it's trying to get ground, it's trying to get satisfaction from sensuality, from embodiment. There's this wrong understanding that sensuality or embodiment is here to save me. So that's the optimistic view that Saida Utejaniya rejected. Remember that I mentioned him a while back. Is life optimistic, is the Dharma rather optimistic, pessimistic, or realistic? So it's like, yeah, we sometimes have this optimistic view. When I get my act together, I get my meditation together, I'll get my really nice meditation shawl, I'll develop all kinds of good habits, I'll follow the precepts, I'll learn Pali, I'll have right livelihood, I'll earn a living without causing harm, I'll become a vegan, and uh, on and on like that, then I'll be safe, then I'll be happy, then things will be great. Or we give up on that because it's been so frustrating, we tried to do it all right and it didn't work, didn't deliver happiness, so now we're done, I'm done. And sometimes when we're done, we want to check out or we want to you know, use drugs, alcohol, or watch too much TV, or think nothing matters, right? So that's sort of the aversive approach. If I can't be happy, nobody else should be happy, so we become a pain in the butt for other people. So this this practice of embodiment is, is the, the sort of awakening, is realizing that the world is not here to torment us, the body is not here to torment us, and it's not here to save us. It's really, for lack of a better way to talk about it, it's a gateway or a working ground 
to realize the mind free of grasping, a mind that is intimate, not rejecting embodiment, curious, interested, undefended, feeling the joys and sorrows, the highs and lows, not afraid to really get married, have kids, be a monk, be a business person, be an artist or do whatever you're going to do, not afraid of engagement, but not expecting it, not dependent on it making us happy, not thinking that it could make us happy. I have a quote or a story I love to retell. It's from an article that Susan Piver wrote about relationships. She's a Buddhist writer. And she just tells a story of going to a retreat and there was talking on this retreat and chatting with someone she didn't know before. And you know how it is on these retreats. Sometimes you can have a really deep conversation with someone you don't even know. And, they, and he started opening up. He was an older guy who had recently got into a relationship with a younger person. And he really opened up and finally after kind of spilling the beans about this relationship, asked Susan, you know, well, do you think it can work? And this author had this great answer. Well, of course the relationship can work as long as you don't expect it to make you happy. And it's really a great sort of window into body and life and relationship and the whole, you know, world. Yeah, freedom is really possible as a human being, not in the world we want, but in the world we actually inhabit, like this moment. Of course it's possible, as long as we don't expect it to make us happy. So this world is here to realize freedom. It isn't here to make us happy. And this is a real, you know, this is meant to be a real turning for us that um, we want to tease out all the different ways idealism works, that we can go directly to heaven, we can go directly to emptiness, to awakening, without healing the mind the sensitivity we have for life. We have to be willing to feel what's here to feel. Now there isn't, you know, it isn't just, like I mentioned in the talk, it isn't just about a direct approach. Okay, I'm feeling this intense emotional pain and I'm just going to go right in there and feel it and then I'll be done because that's called either greed or aversion. Like we're averse to how long it's taken so I'm just going to radically open to everything there is to open to and I'll be done in a few moments. Or greed, I'm really wanting enlightenment so I'm going to open. So there's a real dance to how we open to embodiment. We don't always have to open to what's most painful. We can find our way. And so the relevant question, you know, in terms of practice is, well, what is the mind, what is the heart willing to be intimate with right now? Like in the great diversity of the present moment, what's showing up in this moment, what is the heart willing to be intimate with? Actually interested in, in this sort of open and, you know, uh, not mediated so much by our thoughts about things. Sort of, that sense of awe that I mentioned at the beginning of the talk. 
what might be here now that I can open to in this undefended way? One of the teachers that early on in my practice I really uh, appreciated, learned a lot from, is Tony Packer. She started out in the Zen tradition. Some of you might know of her. She's written a couple books. She's dead now. But uh, she didn't like the sort of trappings of any of the lineages. So later in her life, she just referred herself as an awareness teacher, I think is how she described herself. But she she had this uh, little teaching about pain. It goes like this, how to be with pain. Start out by not knowing. Watch the ever so subtle attempts by the body and the mind to push it away as if to say, I can't stand this. Don't assume this voice. So even when we have to, when it's appropriate to turn away from pain, we don't have to turn away pretending we know what it is. We can turn away from painful emotions and physical pain because I don't have the capacity, there's not enough stability and not enough wisdom it's not the right time to be intimate with it. But someday, sometime, I'll be back. So we're not pretending, oh, this is too much, or this isn't fair, or nobody could be with this. We want to leave, like even when we turn away, it's like we want to aspire to be intimate with whatever comes our way. That's really the you know, great place for imagination in our practice is just imagining like whatever can happen, I wanna I wanna live as if nothing can surprise me. Anything can happen anytime, so I wanna have that sense of freedom that I can trust this heart, this wisdom, this love to find my way, whatever comes. And, you know, this particular circumstance now, though it's not bad, difficult for many of us right now, it could get really messy with the coronavirus. You know, it's a beautiful aspiration to however this thing plays out in our lives, in our communities. I aspire to be intimate and undefended and nimble and responsive and unafraid to do what needs to be done. Knowing that I don't know how it's going to play out, I really, and even if I do something humiliating where I'm called into action but it seems too much and I turn away, I want to be able to show up for that humiliation too, where I turn out not to be the saint I'd like to be, you know, and I'm just a scared guy turning the other way. That's somebody else's problem. I'll go back to my hoard of toilet paper and zinc tablets and hand sanitizer and, you know, hide away. So it will be interesting, you know, how we, not to have a romantic version that we have to be Florence Nightingale, but we can just be the messy human being we are as this thing plays out. So I want to leave it here so we have plenty of time for discussion. I've said enough.